and all the time we're proposing policies to protect children. Well, after 11 years, I've come to a conclusion that we need to start protecting parents. Isn't this an indictment of our entire American society? That's just not happening. I've been here and witnessed a, a full frontal assault on charter schools, taking away parents' uh, choice and how their children are going to be educated to the detriment, particularly of children of color. Get out! Uh, in recent years, we have put government bureaucrats between parents, children, and doctors when it comes to medical care. I'm out of here. Bye-bye. And now we have this, where if a parent does not support the ideology of the government, they're going to be taken away from the home. Now, I agree with both Senator Weiner and Senator Laird that today it only involves divorce proceedings. And frankly, a, a judge can already factor, factor this in. But I can assure you it's not going to end with divorce proceedings. Ain't no way in In the past when we've had these discussions and I've seen parental rights um, atrophied, I've, 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 encur I've encouraged people to keep fighting. I've changed my mind on that. If you love your children, you need to flee California. Fly, you fools. Flee for the hills, Jesus said, when you see the abomination which causes desolation. Well, Jesus was probably not specifically talking about AB 957, but it surely makes one desolate, infertile, broken, suicidal, and much more. The California bill designed to give the state power to rip away a child from any parent that won't affirm the gender identity of that child is not only insane, but now law in California. Here's the illustrious woman that proposed this new law. Although it's called the TGI bill, they're not mentioned anywhere in the law. What's mentioned in the law is the child's gender identity and expression and the parent's affirmation of that, whatever it is, because that is our duty as parents to affirm our children. Surprise, kids actually can't consent to anything. You bunch of destructive radical Marxists. And if you're wondering if we'll stand in your way, the answer is you better believe it, we will. This insane woman tells us a parent's job is to affirm their children. According to her, there is no more holy job than affirming a child. For a quick reminder of how truly insane this is, I share with you this wonderful example. I have $10,000 cash or, wait a minute, this, two out-of-the-box Oreo cookies. Are you sure? That's ten thousand dollars cash. You want the Oreo cookies? Are you sure? Yes. Okay. What you're seeing right now before you is a young boy being asked if he would rather have ten thousand dollars or two Oreos. And after persistent indications that he should perhaps go with the 10,000, the boy repeatedly picks the two Oreos because fact check, he's a child and he cannot consent responsibly to almost anything. And fact check number two, a parent's job is to shape and mold kids into responsible human beings. God took care of their biology long ago and it is immutable and binary. So you can give up your little idolatrous fish shaking at God and start doing what parents are actually supposed to do which is to help them with their attitude. Those kids need character and they need parents to help them with it. The reason this woman claims the opposite of this is because underneath her words is a truly secular worldview that isn't impartial 
or universal and certainly not tolerant and loving. It's a pagan worship that comes with demonic axioms like this one. Love is unconditional support. Now, love can be many things. It can be patient, it can be kind, it can be enduring, but what it is not is unconditional support because love does not parade itself around, behave rudely, and most importantly, it thinks no evil, all things that not only pride celebrates, but this bill codifies into law. Not only is gender identity a complete farce, but transgenderism is a cover for a much darker agenda. It is a peculiar fact, stated Engels, a few months after Marx died, and you'll know him as the man who wrote the Communist Manifesto along with Karl Marx. He continued and he said that with every great revolutionary movement, the question of free love comes to the foreground. Communists like Marx and Engels knew that if they were going to destroy a society, they must start by demolishing the family. Why? Well, here's why. Remove dad and someone must take his place. By the way, the same is true of God. They want power, they want control, and the person standing in their way is the person that protects the family. The reason it's important to know this is because when you correctly identify the sickness, then you can find the cure. And maybe you'll remember that the same dynamic duo, Marx and Engels, that they said something interesting about religion too. They said it is the opiate of the masses. They said that because they knew the cure and they hated it because it stood in their way, much like they do the family. And that's why we need it so bad right now. We'll talk about that and more today on Indie Thinker. Welcome to the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. This morning I was taking my boys to school and I was talking to them about leadership and the sacrifices that leaders have to make. And I had to distinguish for them uh, the fact that there are good leaders and bad leaders, and obviously bad leaders are corrupt, and they don't really make the same kind of sacrifices as good leaders. And you might think about our current administration in, in America as I uh, speak about that. But nonetheless, I was trying to underscore for them the importance of respecting leadership, but also more importantly, I was trying to help them understand that one day I want them to be leaders, and if they're going to do that, that they're gonna have to make some sacrifices in order to be great leaders. Now, the reason I bring that up at the beginning of this show is that this show actually causes a lot of sacrifice uh, in, in my life personally. It's not easy to make. I'm constantly reading, constantly studying, taking time away from my family, and all sorts of things in order to try to produce a great show for each and every one of you. And the reason I bring that up without sounding too self-aggrandizing, because I would never want to do that, is because I wanna give you an opportunity to not only like, share, and subscribe, but also to support this show. If you've been blessed by what we do here at the show, I wanna ask you to consider giving financially to the show. Now you can do that down below in the description of this podcast in a really unique way. By going to our bit.ly link in the description, you will be taken to our Herbal Alchemy store where you can find great all natural health and beauty products that will help you kick woke out of your bathroom and in your home and help you support a great company because you should know that Herbal Alchemy is a Christian company that also takes some of the proceeds that they get from you and then they send it back out to fight human trafficking around the world. So by going to our bit.ly link, you'll not only be supporting the show, you'll be supporting Herbal Alchemy and you'll be supporting your family. So it's a win, win, win. So make sure to go into the description of this podcast and click our bit.ly link where you can go to our Herbal Alchemy store and purchase a bunch of stuff because you'll not only be supporting Herbal Alchemy, you'll also be supporting the great work here at Indie Thinker. Very often on the show, I'll talk about Christianity today because they happen to be one of the largest, if not the largest, Christian news organizations out there on the planet. 
And very often they neither represent Christianity nor Christianity today, but rather just represent kind of today. So needless to say, uh, they offer articles like the one I want to show you here. And it's, the headline says, should I offer my pronouns? Now, this article is very long and droning and essentially asks the question that if you work at a secular company that's asking for your pronouns, what do you do? I mean, it's a big moral conundrum, right? The tensions roam on each side with whether or not you should pander to a group of people who absolutely despise everything Christianity stands for or whether or not you should just tell the truth. Now, historical Christianity, since we're not talking about Christianity today, would tend to give you the answer pretty pretty accurately, but um, I think we can go ahead and safely give the same answer and save you some time so that you don't have to read that Christianity Today article. And the answer is obviously, hell no. You should absolutely refuse to give your pronouns. And I want to give you a modern example for why this is so important, because this is not just a preferential thing. This is not just a way for Christians to try to be unloving and intolerant of people's differences. Um, this isn't a way to just try to reinforce the obvious reality of biology, but actually there's a much more, a much bigger, more important reason for why we cannot and should not offer our pronouns at, in our workplace, in our bios, or any place else. And I bring you a modern example. Ellen Page, who is an actress that you may be familiar with by name, just recently came out as transgender and changed her name to Elliot. And in a recent Yahoo News article, it says this, that 16 years ago, Elliot Page took the Toronto International Film Festival by storm as the breakout star of Jason Reitman's Oscar-nominated comedy, Juno. Flash forward to 2023, the actor returned to TIFF for his latest film. Again, this is the Yahoo writer, not me. Close to you, Page's first leading man role since coming out as transgender in 2020. Now, some of you still may be confused, so here's the story. Paige was the breakout lead actress in the movie Juno. Now, we are told that she has earned the honor of her first leading role again, because now she's quote-unquote a man. So, whatever happened between Juno and this new movie? I can answer that for you pretty quickly. After Juno, she, like many other struggling actresses, found out that it's really hard to get breakout roles, and while struggling with this, obscurity, she had a deeply troubling psychotic breakout. Now, this is not me saying that. This is Paige saying this in a LA Times article where she recounts what took place. And in this, she says that she was feeling really down one day. She started punching herself in the face, leaving bruises on her face until she heard a voice tell her that she is a man. Now, you can go to that article yourself and see all of this. This is, this is not uh, embellished at all. After that event, Paige marched into the butcher shop known as a gender clinic where she got a full service hack job on her body. Now we are told that she is once again starring in a movie, but this time she's starring as a man. So here's some of the major problems with this kind of cultural phenomenon and more specifically, the pronoun usage request that we're being asked to make more and more. So the first problem is that pronoun usage and transgenderism more generally butchers language. I understand language is a societal construct, it evolves with society, but, but not with pseudoscience and not with gender dysphoria. Listen to me, we don't change our language because people are struggling in this way. 
I understand that there may be a technical use for they for first person singular. I've heard all of the articles and all of the arguments, but all of that is undermined by the fact that language is a subjective tool, yes, but used to explain objective reality. So in other words, language is a social construct, or in other words, it's something that we create, but we create it not just to do whatever we want to with it, but actually, I mean, this is why we have encyclopedias and such, and, and Webster's dictionaries. Uh, but we, we create this subjective language in order to use a tool to help us understand objective reality. So when we say the word man, we are trying to aim at something very specific. We are trying to aim at somebody with a specific set of chromosomes and the same thing, but the opposite for a woman. And just because we, you know, connect some of the social constructs of like the color blue and the color pink and the building of forts or the listening to uh, classical music and a love of ballet or whatnot, because we associate these genders with these things, which are stereotypical, yes, but very often accurate, doesn't necessarily mean that the word male and female are merely just social constructs with no meaning or with a meaning that can be arbitrarily defined. We are clearly trying to define something very, very important. So if I call a person they, it is in no way because I believe or they should believe that they are some kind of genderless widget. There is no such thing as a genderless person. So the claim is nothing more than a a assertion that we are essentially our feelings. And that's nothing more than Cartesian dualism. And that makes the person not only incomprehensible, but also makes their, per, their body the subject of big pharma's exploits. And that's the second thing here. I mean, we universally decry smoking almost as entirely as a culture, as bad for your health. The whole world is mad at Purdue Pharma right now for pushing oxy on the world and creating the worst drug addiction epidemic in TV show history. But when bone density issues, infertility, blindness, cardiac issues, and bodily mutilation comes from big pharma, we're supposed to celebrate because marginalized identity status is placed upon people seeking this supposed care? Sorry, no. I care about people way too much to affirm that nonsense. And then third, it, transgenderism, pronoun usage, it also butchers love. We've been told that calling Ellen, Ellen, is actually dead naming her. And this is a hate crime. Thus, every movie she's ever starred in where there's credits is actually committing a hate crime against Ellen Page because her real name is supposedly Elliot. The real way to love her is to affirm her delusion and to call her him, according to our culture. Real love is only antithetical to truth in a world where Christianity has lost its social significance because, of course, it's not true. To tell somebody the truth is to love them. And if Christianity was more dominant, we would agree to this, that the best way to love someone is to tell them the truth. And finally this, it butchers reality. At this point, a lot of people will say, why can't you just say the pronoun? It doesn't hurt you, and isn't it rude or uncommonly mean-spirited to refuse to just say a simple pronoun if somebody wants you to say it? Just obey like a good dog. After all, you don't go out of your way to be rude to people who are dressed poorly or have bad breath. You don't go up to them and say, hey, by the way, you look real ugly today. So why do we do that to people in the trans community? True enough, we absorb certain realities on the regular for the sake of unnecessarily hurting other people's feelings, especially if you're married. But we don't do so under the pressure of, of being demanded to say that. You can offer certain politenesses of your own free will, but you, in the 
trans community demand that we give you that quote unquote politeness. Moreover, last time I checked, lying to somebody really isn't that kind. When you're being asked to affirm someone's gender identity, you're actually being asked to shift all biological reality for one person's preference. Can you imagine anything more destructive to that individual and more condoning of narcissism than to communicate to someone that reality has to bow to you because you were born? We're being asked to shelve everything we know about biological science, everything we know about basic objective reality, and really a lot of what we know about English, all for the sake of one person's pronoun hangups. We can't read the Bible and pray in schools because it may offend someone, but everyone has to close their eyes and make believe this entitled individual and their feelings are more meaningful than the truth. Sorry, but the answer has to be no to that. Not only for my sake, but also for the person's sake, the world's sake, for Ellen Page's sake. As Voltaire said, if someone can force you to go along with absurdities, they can force you to commit atrocities. And before you think that's too much of an exaggeration, please just grab a history book and look up the 20th century. And now I want to move on to perhaps a much smaller, but nonetheless a, an atrocity in the present, because Nancy Pelosi just recently announced that she is running for office again. And for those who are counting, you're going to need a lot of hands to come up with the age of Nancy Pelosi because it is 83. And so now at the ripe age of 83, Nancy Pelosi is gearing up for yet another run in California. And if that weren't enough to induce some kind of vomitous reaction in your body, uh, here is her tweet about her re-election campaign. Now more than ever, our city needs to advance San Francisco values and further our recovery. Our country needs America to show the world that our flag is still there. I, I assume she means the, the uh, LGBTQ flag, but nonetheless, with liberty and justice for all. That is why I am running for re-election and respectfully ask for your vote. Well, my God, perhaps you can see the way the American public is going to respond to Nancy trying to promote, I mean, without, with a straight face here, trying to promote San Francisco values to further the recovery of America. Forgive me, but it is San Francisco values that is the death of America. And all you have to do is take a little trot around San Francisco downtown to see that in this beautiful, would be beautiful city, now covered with feces, drug addiction, homelessness, mental illness, and all sorts of other things, that the values of San Francisco are exactly what is wrong with this nation. But it's not just San Francisco values. It's not just the progressive, cut off your nose to spite your face kind of ideology that you must be moving forward and you gotta be constantly moving and constantly changing things even if the things you're changing are actually really, really good the way they are. Um, it's not just that that is actually hurting our nation. It's, it's not just San Francisco values. Of course, that is hurting not only California, uh, with bills like AB 957, as I said at the beginning of this show, but, but it's also people like Nancy Pelosi and people in her age bracket. I mean, at least Donald Trump is 77, but 83 staging a re-election campaign? Now, we've recently seen how awful the gerontocracy we have in America really, really is. To underscore that, I'm going to show you a clip that isn't just kind of showing uh, gerontocracy, because I've also got Fetterman in here, and Fetterman is not old. It, more than anything, it just shows the kind of nepotism and the kind of egregious nonsense that we elect into office. But of course, it does show the incredible problem with having very, very old people 
being our main leaders. So check it out. All right, so here's Mitch McConnell. I don't know where the name Cocaine Mitch came from, but if it came from any kind of past experience, uh, maybe it's starting to catch up with him. Did you hear the question, Senator, running for re-election in 2026? All right, I'm sorry, you all. We're going to need a minute. And then, of course, here we have John Fetterman doing his thing. Thank God for this man. Really, like the, you know, the 95, 95, 95, you know, um, you know, obviously, the, you know, you're pretty much preoccupied with, with 95, and I, know, I certainly am, too, and we know it's a major uh, eatery, not just for, for Pennsylvania, but for the East, the East Coast. Does anybody, has anyone ever been able to tell what John Fetterman is actually saying? Him and Joe Biden are just two peas in a pot. He should be the vice president. These two men, um, I would love to see them having a prolonged conversation with each other. And then, of course, we have Dianne Feinstein, okay, who actually is nothing more than a puppet I, being told to say I to a vote by the people who are sitting next to her because apparently she is so old she can't even keep up with what is going on around her. Okay, so pushing that aside, um, here's the real problem with these people wielding power to change the future of our nation, especially people in their 80s, and Joe Biden going to be something like 86 if he completes his second term and gets elected again. Um, here's the big problem with gerontocracy. First of all, you don't have to reap the consequences of your actions. You can do all sorts of things to cement your legacy, all sorts of things that you think are beneficial um, to, to you and, and to your reputation, but be incredibly damaging to the people who have to come behind you and pick up the pieces after you're done. This is why old people don't need to be in these positions of power, because they are not going to have to face the consequences for their policy. They are going to implement things that could just be for their own personal benefit while it injures everybody else around them. And this is kind of the second thing, is that not only are you not going to reap the consequences for your actions, but that, that opens the door for, for vanity that, that ultimately really damages the, the future generations that come after you because you're just simply doing this for yourself. Now, there's a Bible story here that I think is very, very fitting. So even if you immediately just kind of like want to rip your skin off and you scream out uh, the moment I quote the Bible on this program, if you just happen to be an atheist or whatnot, um, bear with me here because I think that uh, it won't hurt you just to take a little bit of medicine today. And this is a relevant story. Hezekiah is the king of of the southern kingdom of Judah, and he's a good king for all intents and purposes until the latter, latter part of his life where he kind of shows the enemies all of his uh, tactics and all of his strategies and all of his defenses. And um, the prophet Isaiah comes to him and says, hey, because you've done this, these guys are going to fight against you and they're going to take the next generation captive. They won't fight against you, but now that they know your strategy, your defenses, and all this stuff, and now that you've opened yourself up to the enemy, uh, they're going to take advantage of that in your, in your son's generation. And Hezekiah says the startling thing that obviously our gerontocracy today is saying also, as, as bad as this sounds coming out of a person's mouth, essentially with the actions of Nancy Pelosi and others like her, they are saying the same thing with their actions. And they're saying this. Well, as long as it doesn't come in my time. That's what Hezekiah said. 
It can come to my children, but I just want to know that I've done what I needed to do in my time. I don't care if what I do impacts the next generation as long as I do something that helps me personally, is essentially what Hezekiah said. And this is something that is, well, the reverse of which is echoed by Thomas Paine, one of our founding fathers. He said this, I prefer peace, but if trouble must come, let it come in my time so that my children can live in peace. I think that's powerful. Not only does it take a level of humility and a level of sacrifice in the heart of a real father, which are rarer and rarer these days, but it also takes a person who is a real leader to stand up and know that it is time for them to sit down. Thomas Paine is saying, hey, as long as I can make sure that my life is benefiting the next generation, then, then I'll do whatever it takes. But that also includes people like Nancy Pelosi finally zipping their lip and going far into retirement so that they don't promote the continued destruction of our nation through San Francisco values of all things. I mean, since chills up my spine to think that that would be what we want to promote in any shape, form, or fashion. Needless to say, San Francisco is definitely on its last leg. Nancy Pelosi will kick out the whatever remains from underneath that rotting corpse. So we don't need it for the country, and we certainly don't need it for San Francisco, and we don't need it for our future generations. Whatever you can do effectively will be done in retirement at this point in time, Nancy. And I say that to all of those, including those on the right, who are far too old to desire the spotlight as much as they do. It's time for a new generation to arise with new ideas who are willing to stand for truth in ways that the past generation has proven that they won't. We'll talk more about this in our final segment, Bible Study with Democrats. Oh God of Pronouns. Secularism is the idea that religious meanings and definitions no longer have a place in the public square. So in other words, Take that stuff out of Capitol Hill. We don't want it. Separation of church and state and all that. Uh, and certainly don't let religion be discussed in public schools. And in fact, why don't you just take your little religion and go home and keep it in your prayer closet because we don't want it anywhere near the public square. Well, the problem with that is that, sure, you may hate Christianity with an irrational de- diabolical hatred, but the idea that nothing would take its place has been proven time and time again to be completely ridiculous. And as Christianity has moved away as the central focus and ethical kind of foundation of the American West, something else has taken its place, and that is paganism. And now, to be sure, paganism is not just um, atheism and agnosticism, but paganism actually is a spiritual belief because people need spiritual practice and spiritual belief, but it is spiritual belief and practice that is totally fabricated and totally arbitrary. And we see it all over. And you saw it just recently, if you did see this, but you probably didn't, um, in a town hall that Newsmax put on for struggling presidential candidate Mike Pence. Now, I like Mike. I think he's a godly man, all that good stuff. Um, I, I think some of the things that he did when he was vice president are laudable, but, but needless to say, he has no chance of being president. And just recently in a town hall that he did, he shows us why. So I want to play that for you. I'll stop here and there and then try to kind of sum up with some things toward the end. But here's that clip. Good evening, Vice President. I am an LGBTQ member and I have trans individuals in my family. 
Recent anti-LGBTQ bills have been signed into law all around the United States, including here in Iowa. So far in 2023, 15 transgender individuals and gender nonconforming people have been murdered. All right, real quick. So the implication there is just simply, Mike Pence, you weren't there when the trigger was pulled. You weren't there when the stabbing took place. But ultimately, you and your Republican buddies, you guys are to blame for these 15 people and their deaths. Uh, it's all because you guys decided to jump on this campaign of protecting children and making sure that kids, when they were four years old, because they decided to wear a dress one time, that you didn't socially transition them or put them on puberty blockers and hormone blockers. It's because you made those laws in these different states around America that these 15 people are dead. Now, she's never going to square that circle. She's never going to truly connect the dots there. And she's never, most importantly, going to tell us why these people died. See, what she won't tell you is that trans people are statistically engaged in behaviors that make them much more likely to be murdered, things like prostitution and drug usage and that kind of thing. And, and therefore, they're at higher risk of being murdered, not because they're trans. And this is the whole point here. Notice she will not tell you throughout the rest of the clip I play for you that these people were murdered because they were trans. We just get that they were murdered. Now I get it. Trans people want special rights granted to them because of their marginalized identity. But sorry, you don't get special powers. You're not immune to death. You're not immune to murder. None of us are uh, just because you're trans. So the real question is, is why were they murdered in the first place? We're not gonna get that. All we get is that Republicans are to blame, but let's keep listening. The vast majority of those people have been black and Latinx transgender women. Okay, so I have to stop right there and just stop because one of the things that bothers me throughout this whole conversation is the tears of this woman. So she says 15 people were murdered. 15 people, not in her family. She doesn't even know the names of these people. I bet you if you asked her, she wouldn't know a single name of a single person, but yet she is almost uncontrollably weeping before Mike Pence about this genocide, apparently. Now, this is a nation of 350 million people, give or take, and she's crying about 15 people. Now, you may say, well, that's because this really hits home to her because she's in the LGBTQ community. But then she brings up Black and Latinx, so obviously marginalized people of color. They're, they're the ones who are the targets of these things. So let me just help you out with a little statistic. So you gave us one. 15 people have been murdered this year. Uh, 300 people were shot every month in the city of Chicago in 2021. Now, I understand we're entitled to have different emphasis here, and I understand every single life is precious, but if you really care about marginalized communities and people of color, why aren't you weeping uncontrollably about that? We're talking about 15 people murdered in give or take a year, because I mean, we're close to the end of this thing and 15 people were murdered and uh, all the way up until September. And 300 people in a given month in Chicago are murdered. And most of those, you can bet, are black. And she's weeping uncontrollably about these 15 people she's never met, didn't know. And if you asked their name, she wouldn't know any of them. But the most egregious thing, perhaps, is not just the simple political nature in which she tries to gin up these tears, I suggest, but also the things she says toward the end of this conversation. So let's keep listening. It is very hard for me to ask these questions after just hearing what I heard. 
What is your policy plan to protect the transgender community, specifically black and brown trans women, from historically high levels of violence? Well, Melissa, let me say, I, I, uh, I'm deeply grieved to hear about those tragic circumstances. And, uh, and I hear your heart. Um, and I'm, I I'm, I'm moved by your emotion. I truly am. So Look, I'm president of the United you. States, I'm going I'm to see to the protection of every American and, and the rights of every American. Um, but uh, whether that that's squares with my values or not, and I'm a, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I have a particular view As am of I. these matters, and, uh, and you have a different view of those, perhaps. And I all right, so I gotta stop right there because not only is this woman clearly incapable of processing her emotions in a, in a adult fashion, but, but also she is clearly deceived about what it means to be a Bible-believing Christian. She already said that she claims to be in the LGBTQ community and she's there uncontrollably crying about 15 people that were supposedly murdered because they were LGBTQ, but doesn't even know if they were at the end of the day. So she's making dishonest arguments and she claims to be a part of a community of people that the Bible obviously <laughs> speaks against. And so the, the point is here is I wanna be charitable, but the reason LGBTQ people think that they can claim their Christian bona fides is because they are a product of paganism and secularism, but not a product of Christianity. I hope we understand this, but, but hear me well on this. I, I wanna help her and you and anybody else out there who thinks that you can be a professing member of the LGBTQ community and a professing Christian, because you can't, um, I wanna help you understand that it's not entirely your fault that you think that. It's not entirely your fault that you've allowed secularism to destroy definitions and change the very substance of Christianity in the present as though it could. It's, it's not only your fault, it's also Christian's fault. Because very often when it comes to these kind of emotionally charged topics, we respond the way Mike Pence did in this interview. We say we're sorry, we, we apologize, we help them kind of process their emotions. When the real way to handle these things is to step back and say, listen, you seem very emotionally distraught about what you're talking about. I don't know if you knew these individuals personally, but I can understand that. But I have to tell you, it's very sad whenever anybody dies, regardless of whatever the reason is. But a man is a man and a woman is a woman. And transgenderism isn't true. So my administration cares about the truth. And as a Bible-believing Christian, I think we need to endorse the truth. And you said you're a Bible-believing Christian too. And I would highly encourage you to check out what the scripture actually says about transgenderism and what the Bible actually says about homosexuality, because I think you'll find it very fascinating. And the real question at the end of the day is, we have to ask ourselves as adults whether or not we are led by our emotions or we are led by the truth. And a Christian cannot be led by their emotions. They have to be led by the truth. So ultimately, something like that would be way more beneficial to this woman, and I'm just doing that off the cuff, than actually what Mike Pence said to her. But by and large, Christians have been responding this way to these issues for far too long. So there is a little bit of culpability here, not just with the individual, but also with the church. Because by and large, we've avoided these kind of sticky topics, these emotionally charged topics, these topics that we know there's a social repercussion for. Maybe because we don't want people walking out of our church and we want to continue to make our bottom line and therefore we don't want to talk about anything that could be polarizing in church. And very often we say, well, we're just going to preach the gospel in church. And what we mean by that is we're going to stay as far away from anything 
that could get us into trouble, even if Jesus did talk about it, because we don't want to pay the price. And as a result of us not wanting to pay that price, we've paid another price. And here's the price that we paid. We have not shown the world what a godly man or woman looks like when they engage in conflict. Now, just imagine with me, if you will, put on your John Lennon glasses and go to a world with me that doesn't exist, a, a utopia, if you will. And imagine for me a, a generation of Christians who wade into conflict, but do so in a holy and sanctified manner, who are willing to engage in these topics and they don't lose their cool when they're attacked. They don't lose their cool when people, you know, use ad hominem name calling or anything like that, but they actually can, in a cool-headed way, engage in conflict, but don't avoid it. See, I think a mark of genuine spirituality is being able to engage in conflict and doing so without sinning. Avoiding conflict robs people of the testimony of what it looks like when a Christian truly engages in very difficult topics. When you show them what it looks like, it gives hope to the world that there may be an answer and one that we even haven't considered yet. And as our world gets more and more secular, I think we need more and more Christians who can wade into conflict and do so without sinning. Thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and go with God.